Take your Bibles with me if you would and open them to the Gospel of Luke chapter 5. Back to the Gospel of Luke. The fifth chapter. And in case you are longing for a reminder, it was this week a year ago that we began the Gospel of Luke. And we have blazed a trail to the last part of chapter 5. Moving through like a herd of turtles. But I hope it has been um, beneficial for you and encouraging for you to walk through a, a book of Scripture verse by verse, word by word. That's why we do that. That's why we do this, because we want to look at the whole counsel of God's Word, right? And we want to know what God's Word says, so we are not ashamed of taking our time through a book of the Bible to see what God has in store for us. And we come this morning to Luke chapter 5 uh, to really what I believe to be one of the most powerful passages in all of Scripture. Um, when you begin to let the words of Christ that we look at today sit upon your heart, when you meditate upon them and consider them as you walk through life, this can become, and I hope becomes for us, one of the most meaningful passages of Scripture in our continuous Christian walk, and our Christian growth, and as we battle even temptation and... Um, assaults from the enemy this passage can be one of the most valuable for us because it so adequately displays the heart of christ and the heart of god over the month of december we talked about what it really meant for christ to come um, to earth and take on flesh and dwell among us and we highlighted mainly that he he brings peace uh, he brings peace with god that through christ and christ alone can we have peace with god we talked about that The coming of Christ, John chapter 1, verse 14, displays the person of God. Uh, Last week we talked about the coming of Christ displays the saving heart of God. And this passage just fits right into that same theme. We get to see, as we come through the Gospel of Luke, God's desire to save humanity. So this is one of the passages that I would say so clearly sums up the coming of Christ for us. And as such, it should be a passage that every believer hides within their heart in an easily accessible place because it's a passage that provides for us encouragement, it provides peace, it provides motivation for us in our evangelism, in our Christian faith, our Christian walk, and it's a passage that will even provide confidence for us. It's a passage that shows us the kind of company that Christ keeps around Himself, the kind of people that Christ wants to be around, the kind of people that Christ has a heart for. Now throughout history we have seen and have solid records and even see and experience today that rulers or people in high places have often desired to surround themselves with the most talented and the most uh, powerful and the richest people of the time, uh, mainly for personal advancement, but we can look throughout history and see that kings have filled their courts and their castles with the most powerful people of their country. We can look today and see that the the famous today, even the celebrities of our day, surround themselves with the rich and likewise and equally famous and what they call the beautiful. Uh, We would be hard-pressed even in today's time to find a president who continually surrounds himself with the socially unacceptable or the socially outcast. Uh, and, and even ourselves, we're guilty of picking our friends or those people that we keep company with based on trivial matters such as appearance or wealth or 
popularity and on and on down that line. That is the, that's a common thread of humanity, isn't it? We surround ourselves by people who will either make us look good or provide us more advancement in this life. And that's been true of every human being to some degree or another, except for one, hasn't it? There, there's one individual throughout human history who has had the complete right to surround himself with the most elite individuals of this world, and yet he has found time and time again surrounding himself with the outcasts of society, with the lowly, the dis, disrespectful, the disregarded. That man is Jesus. And he is often found throughout the Scriptures surrounding himself by the lowest of the low sinners, isn't he? Even choosing such people to be his disciples, to be his instruments, to be his companions, his tools, his closest friends. And what we find in today's passage is this, this, this beautiful contrast of Jesus who is worthy of all honor and worthy of all praise and all glory is found actually keeping the company of sinners, surrounding Himself, willfully choosing to be around those who are unworthy. Consciously choosing to be around those who are low, who are the downcast, who are the undesirable of humanity. In fact, we can say, unlike the kings of our temporary world, the king of heaven, his courts aren't filled with the glorious. His courts aren't filled with the prideful. His courts are filled with the guilty who have been redeemed. Such a contrast to human logic, isn't it? Worldly perception. In the passage before the one we're looking at this morning, if you remember... uh, month or so ago, we looked at Luke chapter 5, verses 17 through 26. And in that passage, Jesus has healed a man who's crippled. And he's done it in such a miraculous fashion that if you look in verse 26, the people who witnessed it were seized with amazement. They were glorifying God because of it. They even admitted we have seen extraordinary things. And up to this point in Luke's gospel, we've seen Jesus's popularity has just been skyrocketing, hasn't it? It's just been climbing and increasing passage after passage after passage. The Pharisees haven't uh, began their outright assault on Him yet. In fact, this is just the second time that they've been introduced into the Gospel of Luke. And so, up to this point, Jesus' popularity has just climbed and people have been amazed by Him, astounded by Him. And instead of Him choosing to be around the elite of the people in His country, He's now found leaving the people in amazement and then found in verse 27 through 32, meeting with the wretched of society. The undesirable. You know, most of us, we have the mentality to think that if our fame and popularity climbs and we're going to surround ourselves with people of like manner, Christ is not that way. His popularity may skyrocket, but He's reaching for the lowly. He's reaching for the outcast. And what I want you to understand this morning is that this is the normal practice of our Lord. This is not an isolated event. In fact, this is the very heart of Christ. To reach out to the sinners. To regularly spend time with those whom the leaders of His day deemed as unworthy That's what we find in the passage before us. And in that regard, for those of us who know we are guilty before God in our sin without Christ, it is such an encouraging passage 
that Jesus loves sinners, isn't it? And for some of us this morning, it's a convicting passage because we are stuck in, a, in the snare of self-righteousness, unaware we need the mercy of God through Christ. And we'll be distracted just like the Pharisees are in this passage. So it, it's a brief couple of verses of Scripture that we look at this morning, church, and yet it is simultaneously profound and simple, amazing and yet expected. What is true today in the passage that we look at has been and always will be true of the life of Christ and the Gospels and the heart of Christ now after the cross and after His resurrection as He dwells in, in heaven. It, it's expected in that regard and yet it's amazing. It's so amazing for us to think of the King of Heaven to humble Himself to the point to dine with sinners and reach out to those who have actually transgressed His law which I hope we will stress this morning. So look with me in Luke chapter 5. Let's delay no longer and look into verse 27. <clears throat> Passage of Scripture that I hope will mark your heart, that you will mark in your Bible, that you will meditate on this week. Luke writes in verse 27, and he says about Jesus, after this, he, Jesus, went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And leaving everything, Levi rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with him. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The first thing I want you to note about this passage is in verse 27 and 28 is the call of Christ. Jesus is found here in this passage extending a call to a man named Levi, elsewhere known as a man named Matthew. Uh, widely believed to be the Matthew who wrote the Gospel of Matthew. Not much is given to us about the man named Levi in this passage. There's not a lot of detail. In fact, there's nothing recorded about what he says. And yet, we have his occupation given to us, and that's for a good reason, because from his occupation and the context and the time uh, that this is taking place in, we can know a lot about the man, but also, more importantly, know a lot about how the people viewed the man. As you can imagine and have probably heard in your life, tax collectors were not highly regarded individuals. Um, I'm sure many of you do not have an, your IRS agent as a friend, a personal close friend. Um, much were the same with tax collectors. Like many of the people Jesus encounters in the Gospel of Luke and all of his time uh, here on earth, they were seen as crooks, thieves, uh, disreputes, undesirables for starters they were widely regarded as thieves because they took more than they needed to and they took it for their own wealth they made themselves wealthy most tax collectors were very wealthy individuals that we have records about during the time and that's because they would take off the top of what they required of people passing through Secondly, they were regarded as unclean and non-religious individuals. 
speaking religiously from the religious leaders of the time, they were either too busy to come into the temple and practice the Jewish customs, or they were so disliked by the religious leaders they weren't allowed to come into the temple to practice the religious customs. And so they were seen as unclean, non-religious. But most striking for the Jewish people, they were seen as traitors. Because tax collectors worked for the Roman government. And they collected taxes on behalf of Rome. They had the government of Rome backing their authority. And instead of standing up for the freedom of their fellow Jews, they were seen as siding with the enemies and contributing to the hostility and the oppression of Rome upon Israel. They were regarded as traitors. Not only supported by Rome, but causing anguish upon their fellow mankind and their own nation. Taxing and taxing and taxing and taxing. So you can imagine whether these things were true of Levi or not, we do not know, but you can imagine the reputation that his occupation has earned him. People pass Levi on the street knowing that he's a tax collector in their community and they are filled with disdain and disgust towards him. They look at him and they see him as an enemy siding with Rome instead of Israel. You forsook your people to make a buck with, Israel, with Rome. And so, as we come to verse 27 and Luke records this seemingly simple passage, we can understand now that Levi's call is a socially shocking call. Not only socially shocking, it's religiously shocking. Why, Jesus, would you choose someone like Levi to follow you? Why would you choose someone as low as a thieving, traitor, tax collector to be one of your disciples, to be one of your followers, to be one of your closest companions? Why choose someone as wretched as him? That's where the Pharisees are coming from in verse 30, but not only the Pharisees, other people of the community. And on top of that, to add to the shock value of this, Jesus isn't just calling a tax collector. He's actually consciously calling a tax collector who's in the tax booth collecting taxes. Right in the middle of his duty. And most likely, Levi was either collecting taxes from fishermen who have hauled fish, which would have probably made some complexities with his relationship to Peter, James, and John. Or he was collecting on a trade route as people brought goods to and from place to place, just like a, a border tax that was quite common. As goods were taken from city to city, they would be taxed by the Romans. And so most people in the area would have known of Levi, would have recognized Levi because of his profession, and they, most of them wouldn't have ever extended a, a helping hand to him, wouldn't have ever invited them into, him into their home, wouldn't have ever included him in anything. And yet, here comes this Nazarene named Jesus... And he extends to Levi a call that is unlike any other call. It's a call that will change his life forever. It's a call that no one else could give to him. And Luke records no small talk here between Levi and Jesus. He doesn't record any discussion. He doesn't record any kind of introductions. He just says Jesus looks at him while he's in the middle of an occupation that 
uh, everybody around him hates, and he says to him, follow me. It's worth noting the Greek word that Luke uses in this passage when he says that Jesus saw him. It's a unique word. It's not used many times in the other Gospels. It's not used in any of the other parallel passages, only in Luke's passage of this account. It's a word that communicates an intense, penetrating, inward look. It's not just that Jesus happened to be gazing around the horizon and saw Levi sitting in a tax booth. Jesus looked intently at him. Looked into his heart. And when Jesus sees this guy sitting in a tax booth, he, he doesn't look and see a tax collector. He doesn't look and see a social outcast. Jesus looks at Levi like he, like he looks at all of us. He looked at him and he saw a man. And he saw his heart. You know what that tells us a little bit about Jesus? Social ideas and social labels matter nothing to God. Jesus looks to him and he sees a man and it's to that man that he extends this calling with two simple words that are very costly words and yet very joyous words. And I want you to understand, no one else standing around would have ever picked Levi. He's the last man in the dodgeball team. Nobody would have thought him worth anything. Nobody would have seen any value in him to go along and make a difference in Israel. Except for Jesus. So Jesus issues this calling to him that's both a command and an invitation. It's a command with authority. It's an order given to him. You must follow me. It's also an invitation. An offer of fellowship and communion. So in, in one seeming swipe here and in two simple words, Jesus has just approached a detestable tax collector in his tax, tax booth collecting taxes. And in two words, he has added him to his ranks as both a soldier and a friend. So in two words, Jesus looks at this socially wretched man, sinful man, whom the Pharisees, religious leaders are going to be in an uproar about, and He says, I'm both going to use you in My service of My kingdom for My glory, and I'm going to befriend you and bring you near and draw you close and enjoy intimacy and a friendship and a relationship with you like you've never experienced before. Jesus does that to all sinners who come to Him in faith for salvation. Jesus looks at the most wretched of us. And He says, if you come to Me in faith, I will forgive you. I will put you in My service of the most glorious kingdom ever known. And I will draw you in as a close and dear child. So what He's doing here with, with Levi same thing he does for us it's also worth noting here that though levi was a tax collector with an undesirable occupational reputation he nonetheless received the same call that all the other disciples received remember in luke chapter 5 jesus has called peter james and john and by association uh, we can lump in that andrew and he says in the end of 
uh, verse 10 there. You're going to now be fishers of men. You're going to be catching men with me. And so verse 11, they brought their boats back to the land and they left everything and followed him. Levi, who is seen as much more socially unacceptable, receives the same call and has the same response. That's remarkable, isn't it? Peter, James, and John, and, and even Andrew are not as socially shocking as Levi is. They weren't highly educated men, but they were still Jews. And they were still loyal to Israel. And they were businessmen, making their own living by their own hand, not taxing other people. And they were successful at it. They had built some sort of an enterprise. They were at least, in some regard, socially reputable men. And they at least were Jewish. And remained loyal to the Jewish faith and Jewish customs. And by several accounts, John and James's family are even thought to be associated with and, and friendly with the high priestly family. And so in the eyes of the people, those four men, Peter, James, John, and, and Andrew, they were running a successful business, providing for their family, meeting their needs, and they weren't anything like Levi was. And yet the call is the same, follow me. And the response is supposed to be the same. Forsake everything for me, make me priority number one. You know what that tells us, church? Our Lord is unbiased, isn't He? It matters not your background, it matters not your occupation, it doesn't matter your particular sin, it doesn't matter your nationality. It doesn't matter your popularity. It doesn't matter your social standing. It doesn't matter your wealth, your bank account. It doesn't matter your previous history. It doesn't matter anything of that. Christ extends the same call to us all. Follow me. Forsake your ways. Trust in me. And I will save you. It doesn't matter if you're earning your own living or if you're a tax collector rejected by your fellow Jews and Israelites. Call is the same no matter who you are or what you have done. Come to me in faith. We have here, just to put it in perspective, the all-glorious King of Heaven, the, the eternal author of life, reaching out to any and to all who are willing to come to Him in faith for the forgiveness of their sins. You know what this passage tells us about the call of Christ? It tells us that the call of Christ extends to all. The call of Christ extends to anybody. Levi had probably heard about Jesus as people were paying their taxes and passing by the streets and gossiping about Him. and He may have even heard Him teach in His community. One thing is for sure, he heard him when he called him to follow him. And Jesus' words penetrated his heart and struck him in such a way that Levi was changed forever, right? At this point in time in Levi's life, it doesn't matter if anybody had ever invited him to do anything with them. Jesus has invited him. And he's forever changed by it. Levi certainly took up that offer. And church, let me just tell you that the same is still true today, right? Jesus calls us to follow Him. Jesus calls us to forsake everything for Him, including ourself. 
And when this call touches your heart through the work and the illumination of the Holy Spirit, you will be changed by it. This is the call of life. This is the call of salvation. This is the call of freedom. This is the call of our forgiveness of sins. But Levi's response and his change doesn't just stop there. Let's continue on in the passage. In verse 29, I want you to note the compassion of Christ. So we've seen the call of Christ extends to everybody, even tax collectors like Levi. Now I want you to see the compassion of Christ. Again, Luke gives us no recorded response of Levi, no uh, exchange between him and Jesus. However, he does give us Levi's two actions that speak tremendous volume. The first action is that he got up and left everything to follow Jesus. Whatever he knew of Christ or whatever, however Christ's words penetrated his heart, he knew Jesus in that moment was worthy enough to forsake everything and follow after. But his second action that Luke records us for us is that he made a great feast in his house and he invited all of his friends so that they can hear Jesus too. And isn't that an appropriate response for a heart that's been changed by Christ? You want everybody else to hear the same message. You want everybody else to experience the same forgiveness, the same life change that you've experienced. A heart that's been forgiven and touched by God is a heart that will want others to be forgiven and touched by God. Evangelism is a natural desire of a believer. And we see that immediately in Levi's life. So he's presumably wealthy because of his occupation, being supported by Rome, and whether or not he took extra money, we don't know. But he holds this great feast and he invites all of his other tax collector buddies and all of the other people that he knew who were probably associated with Rome and equally disregarded by the Jews. And, and he invites them to hear Jesus. He invites Jesus to be with them. And what is so remarkable about the passage is not that necessarily Levi invites his friends to hear of Jesus, although that's a lesson we should learn and learn it quickly. The remarkable part about the verse in the passage is that Jesus was willing to hang out with them. And He was willing to eat with them and He's willing to recline with them. He's willing to spend time with them. It's shocking enough that Jesus is extending a call specifically to Levi. It takes it to another level when Jesus says, yeah, and I'm going to hang out with all your friends too. All the people that the Pharisees in verse 30 are going to call sinners. We'll, we'll define in a moment. Christ is now found with these people having dinner with them. And we know from Scripture and we know from our own experiences, isn't dinner one of the most intimate fellowshipping times? And it's not just dinner, but Luke tells us that Jesus is found reclining with these people. He's talking with them. He's interacting with them. He's not just eating and running. He's spending time with these people. Intentional specific time with tax collectors and sinners. We can, can consider this crowd again. They're, they're the people that are seen as traitors who ran to Rome for money. They're seen as robbing their fellow Jews to make themselves rich. They're disregarded people. In fact, that, that word sinners that the Pharisees are going to use to describe them in verse 30 is the same term as the word wicked in the Old Testament. They are the wicked. And Christ is found eating with them. These aren't people who are 
socially acceptable or religiously devout. They're not offering sacrifices on a regular basis. They're probably Gentiles. They're unwanted. Why don't you just go to Rome if you're going to work for Rome? We don't want you here. And yet here is the elite, most popular, famous man of the time, Jesus, and he's reclining with them. And for the religious leaders who are standing on the outside in verse 30, it doesn't get much more backwards than this for them. Because not only are they not invited to the feast, they're not even wanted at the feast. They're not, they're not included in the feast. And they're not interacting with Jesus. They're supposed to be the elite. They're supposed to be the important people of the day. And this man who's garnered such a following doesn't recline with them like he does with sinners and tax collectors. Like he does with those sinful scums of the world, right? And so we, we find in, in this one verse, church, that the most holy, most glorious, most all-powerful Lord God Almighty who is dwelling in an unapproachable light and clothed with immense splendor and glory has humbled Himself kicking back with people like these. And it makes no sense to the self-righteous minded Pharisees. It's past their logic, past their understanding, past their social norms, past their religious understanding of what it means to be righteous and walk with God and seeking after God. These are the people, the Pharisees in verse 30, these are the people who think they had it right with God who thought they were more righteous than anyone else could be. And they're not in this feast, and they're not spending time with this man who's claimed to be the Son of God, and this man who's claimed to be the prophet of God. They're, they're not getting to recline with Him. Instead, He's reclining with the lowly, the rejected, those who have truly messed up in their life and who really know their guilt. Which tells us something, church. It tells us something very important. It tells us Jesus would rather be with the outcast and the unworthy than the self-righteous and the prideful. That's true for even those who are saved, isn't it? Those who are saved are not those who are self-righteous and think they have it all together before God without Christ. The people who are saved are those who know they're guilty and condemned before God. And need God to deliver them and save them. It's the same story Jesus shares of the tax collector and the Pharisee praying, right? Tax collector so struck in his heart by his sin, he doesn't even lift his head to heaven. Instead, he cries out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, that man goes away justified. Not the self-righteousness, not the pride. Christ desires to keep the company with sinners so that He may forgive them. This adds a whole new element to Jesus dwelling among us, doesn't it? He's dwelling among the guilty. He's dwelling among the unholy. We find this beautiful contrast, don't we, here? The most holy is dwelling with the most unholy. And that's been true of His entire life, right? At His birth, it wasn't the kings and the religious leaders who were there. It was the shepherds. And the Gentile East guys who came from the East. Jesus has always surrounded Himself with the, 
downtrodden, with the, with the socially unacceptable, with the sinful. It wasn't religious leaders at his transfiguration. It was the uneducated fishermen. It wasn't to the high priest that Jesus appeared to at his resurrection. It was to the cowardly, hidden, locked behind a door disciples. And it wasn't the most holy, righteous, elite individual that he called to be the apostle to the Gentiles. It was the self-proclaimed chief of sinners, Paul, who was self-righteous to the core by his own admission. Christ seeks sinners, surrounds himself with the guilty for the sake of redeeming their souls. Turn to no one else but Jesus for salvation, right? Is this not encouragement and motivation and peace and hope and confidence for us? We have a God who loves to save the lost, who has a heart to save the lost, and that is seen in His compassion and mercy extended to Levi and his friends here. That's why I call this point the compassion of Christ because you realize Jesus does not have to interact with sinners. What compassion must the most holy God possess to dwell and sit with those people who have transgressed His own laws? What kind of mercy must be in the heart of Christ to sit in a room with those people who are prone to rebel against Him in their hearts? What patience does Jesus possess to sit back with these people who at the very dinner He's enjoying their company with are sinful in their hearts against Him? What love, church, does Jesus have to sit at a table with a large group of sinful people and know intimately each and every one of their transgressions against Him and to yet recline with them anyways. Is this not a, a beautiful picture of the heart of Christ to seek sinful people to redeem them? It most certainly is. This is a picture of the compassion of Christ for those of us who have transgressed His law. And I, as I was studying this, I was thinking about sin and what it means to God. And on Wednesday nights, we're walking through the book of Genesis. And in chapter 6, we remember that the sinfulness of humanity, what? Grieved God to His heart. Sin causes him sorrow. Sin causes him anger and wrath. And yet here he is found eating with the sinful. There's just nothing that can adequately illustrate the wonder of this message. The wonder of Christ dwelling with such people as us. The wonder of God coming after such people as us. It does provide comfort. It does provide peace and hope and confidence. Comfort when the enemy tempts us and causes us to doubt the love of God towards us because we're so wicked, we'll take heart because Christ wants to redeem the wicked. It provides for us peace to know that our God wants to redeem us, wants us to understand His salvific purpose for us and wants to form us into His own image. It provides hope for us and that Christ will be true to His Word to save us because He desires to save. It provides hope for those we know in our lives are families, our neighborhoods who are unbelievers and need Christ because Christ wants to save unbelievers, provides confidence that we can stand in the security of Christ, the love of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ, and serve Him in confidence because we know He redeems. It provides motivation, doesn't it? 
to share this message with everyone we can? Because we have a God, a Savior, who is eager to forgive. Words fail to communicate this truth, church, in, in all of its adequacy. That those people who are found to be condemned by God's own law can turn to God to be forgiven. Real quickly, the third thing I want you to note is the commitment of Christ in verse 30 and 31 and 32. And I call this the commitment of Christ because Jesus is committed to keeping the company of sinners for the purpose of redeeming them. It's true throughout His whole life. It's always been true of Him and always will be true of Him. The perplexity of the Pharisees has come forth in verse 30. They look at the the disciples. They're grumbling to them. They ask the question, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? This matter is so important to the heart of the Lord that He doesn't just leave it to the disciples to answer. Although the question is addressed to the disciples, these Pharisees get an answer from Jesus Himself. And this is the, the meat of the passage, the point of the passage. We could spend a whole nother hour on these two verses, 31 and 32. Jesus gives these Pharisees the perfect illustration. He looks to them and He gives them a rather convicting illustration for them and a rather encouraging illustration for those who are aware of their sinfulness before God. He answers them and says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. That's the perfect illustration because it is both simple enough to understand and yet profound and clear enough that there's no question in what he's saying. We know by experience those who think they're healthy don't need a doctor. Don't go to the doctor. Don't care to hear the opinion of the doctor. and Don't seek after the doctor. And the doctor doesn't seek after them. It's those who know they're sick that have the benefit of the physician. Same is true with Christ. If you think you're right before God without Christ, you will not know the benefits of Christ. But if you know you're sick before God, sick in your soul because of the disease of sin, you will know the great physician. Christ takes it even more though and makes it even more clear to to these people. I'm not just after the sick soul of sinners. I want you to know I'm after sinners themselves. I'm I'm after these people. The ones I'm reclining with, the ones I'm eating at the table with, these are the people specifically I have come for. He says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Christian, I beg you, hide that verse in your heart. For when you are at your lowest, there is perhaps... Very few other verses as comforting as this one right here. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And when the enemy tempts us, and he will tempt us to think we're too sinful and we're too unworthy for Christ, remember that's true, but Christ has come for the sinners. This verse is worth taping on your fridge, taping on your mirror and hiding it in your heart. I want you to notice a few things about it and we'll move very quickly. First, I want you to notice Jesus says, I have come to do this. He's taking responsibility. He's taking ownership for His decision. 
He's not hiding the fact of his true desires. He doesn't care that the Pharisees or religious people think he's crazy and think he's off his rocker. He is taking ownership of what he's doing. I have come to make this decision to sit and dine and recline with these kind of people. I've come to call the wretched. I've come to call the guilty. I've come to call the unworthy. And I make no mistake about it. These people whom you have rejected are the very people I have come for. Second, I want you to notice, he says, I've not come to call the righteous. We've touched on this already. Those who think they are okay before God without Christ and okay in their sin and they're going to take their chances do not enjoy the call of Christ. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And those who are dwelling in their pride before God and thinking they're good enough before God will not know the call of Christ. He has not come for those who are blinded by their pride, who reject Him in their self-righteousness. Bear in mind, the Holy Spirit can break any heart of stone and turn it to a heart of flesh and redeem anybody who is lost. But those who are unwilling to admit their guilt and condemnation before God as sinners will not know the call of Christ. Thirdly, He says in that statement, He has come to call sinners. Those who are the wicked, those who are the wretched, those who are the outcasts, those who are the very ones that Pharisees are grumbling about, those are the very people that have broken the law of God and, and rebelled against Him, not just His laws, but His very nature and person. Those are the people I'm coming after. The people who have earned wrath, the people who have earned condemnation, the people who have earned my judgment are the people I'm coming to redeem. Fourthly, and finally, notice in this passage, he says, I've come to call these sinners to repentance. To turn from their sin of unbelief to belief. To forsake trusting in self to trust in me. To give up a life that is opposed to me and turn to me for salvation. I've come to call people like I've called Levi. Follow me. I've come to be around the people that the Pharisees are grumbling about, the sinners and the tax collectors, to extend the same call and the same change of heart that I did to Levi. Follow me and leave everything to do it. Place me as priority number one. I've come to call them to repentance that they know, may know freedom from sin, that they may know life in Christ, that they may know joy in God and peace in His Holy Spirit and hope for the life to come that I've secured for them as their substitute. I've come to offer everything they cannot find on their own. And I've come to issue the command and the invitation to enlist them as soldiers in my army and to invite them to be my dearest children for eternity. That's what I've come to do. I've come to call sinners to repentance. I've come to call those who are previously my enemies and astoundingly make them my children. That's the message of the Gospel. That's the message that we must have as Christians. This is the, the reason we can even come and gather and worship God, isn't it? Because we've enjoyed His saving grace. The only thing that separates me from the worst sinner in the world today is the grace of God. And we have a God and belong to a God and know a Savior who has the very heart to save such people as me.
save such sinners as Levi. No one's too far gone. No one's transgressed too much. No one's rejected Christ too much. No one's too far down a, a wrong path. Christ is here to redeem any who will come to Him. Church, this is a message we must rest in. This is a message we must have as our foundation. This is a message we must share, right? It's 2017, first day of a new year. Who are you going to share this message with? Who are you going to minister with? Every one of us here this morning, if, if it's not true of ourselves, we know somebody who is in a place of struggle. Who's in a crossroads of making very destructive, sinful choices or deciding to struggle and fight against sin and follow God. And they need this message. We need this message. And every temptation that arouses in our hearts and every doubt that tries to take root within our souls, we need to know this message that Christ has a desire to save us and not only save us, but to shape us in His image. I have so prayed that God would pierce the hearts of unbelievers here this morning with this message. Not knowing who would be here, obviously, that are unbelievers, but praying that God would awaken somebody's heart to the truth of the Gospel, that He wants to save them, that without them they are condemned, but with them they can have forgiveness and pardon and life. And they're are unbelievers here this morning who need to believe this message, surrender their life to Christ, come, in, come to Him in faith. There's no coincidence that you are here this week when we came to this passage in Luke. No happenstance, no chance encounter that God wanted you here this morning when we studied this passage. God is mercifully graciously extending the same call to you today that he extended to Levi in this passage. The very fact that you're here, unbeliever, is proof of that. And Christian, you, you may be struggling with all kinds of things this morning and this year, and, and some of you, I'm, I'm burdened with you knowing some of your struggles. There's no secret you are here this morning for this passage also no matter what you face in this life no matter the struggles you're going through right now you have a confident message of the love of christ towards sinners this is what it's all about isn't it you may get separated from family you may face circumstances of, of financial proportions that are difficult to comprehend and figure out how you're going to overcome you may wrestle with this, that, and the other. But the truth is, you can always have assurance in Christ. And the temporary trivial matters of this life don't matter in comparison to the eternity secured by Christ. Promise to those who come to Him in faith. Oh, how I've prayed this passage would touch our hearts. Increase our adoration for our God and be moved to saving faith to Him for unbelievers. I pray that it will be true of us all. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. just want to let it speak for itself, God. Sometimes my words get in the way and I, I regret this. And I'm sorry for it, O oh Lord. 
I pray more than anything this morning that people heard and saw your words from the passage more than they remember anything of mine. My words will not change a heart and save only yours. But I pray, God, we were blessed to remember that you extend this call of salvation to us all. That we as believers can rejoice in this beautiful truth and we can share this beautiful truth that there's nobody in our families and nobody in our workplaces that's, that's too far gone to hear this message. We can share it in hope. We can rejoice in it no matter the circumstances we face in this life. Oh God, but your saving desire is what we want to see visibly today in lives changed this morning. Oh God, would you soften a heart this morning to the place where they can no longer resist and they must come confessing that they need you as Savior. That they may finally come and be saved once for all. Lord, I cannot thank you enough for your beautiful heart to save the sinful. We're so sorry, God, that we've transgressed your laws. So sorry that we've rebelled against you. We are grieved, Lord. Now that you've awakened us to the truth, we are grieved that the cross was necessary. And yet we are so thankful for it. Your compassion, your mercy, your grace, your forgiveness is unmatched, O oh God. Let it be everything to us as we begin this new year. We thank you. I thank you, God, that you spend time with sinners like Levi and tax collectors because that means you spend time with me. And as you called Levi, you have called me, and I thank you for that. I thank you for calling these people here, this church. Oh God, would you be gracious and bless them with an increased adoration, increased faith, an increased understanding of who you truly are. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.